Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The first method for estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him, wrote the Italian diplomat and author Niccolo Machiavelli in 1513. A mere 500 years later, we in the Westminster village still cannot help but obsess over the people whispering in the ears of our political rulers, hoping it might give us clues to their intelligence, to their thinking, to their intentions. And there is no more important advisor to a ruler, or prime minister as we in Britain call them now, than a chief of staff. And these days it's men or women, Niccolo. So chief of staff is a weirdly American job title. It was first imported to Downing Street by Margaret Thatcher and then resurrected by Tony Blair in the genial form of Jonathan Powell. The chief of staff is the most senior political appointee in Downing Street, the king or queen of all the special advisers. And if you want an indication of the importance of the job, just look at the furore this week around Keir Starmer's prospective pick, Whitehall power player Sue Gray. Sue Gray, she is a senior civil civil servant. servant you've never heard of. Not anymore. We have Sue Gray's eye-popping new job. Conniving in secret meetings with the yeah. party of opposition. Men for their integrity and dedication to public service decided to join the party with a real plan for Britain. Some chiefs of staff managed to stay quietly out of the headlines. Others, like the subject of this week's episode, very quickly find that they themselves have become the story. Nearly seven years ago, Fiona Hill became joint chief of staff to Theresa May. She and her colleague and friend Nick Timothy became some of the highest profile figures ever to hold the role. Her two chief advisers, Nick Timothy is one, Fiona Hill is the other. Mr Timothy and Miss Hill have almost become lightning rods for the criticism of Mrs May. The pair seem to have a massive influence over every single decision taken by May's government. Hill was in the news day after day said to be terrifying to cabinet ministers and civil servants alike. Uh, Sort of bulldogs on behalf of Mrs May. Just 11 months after entering number 10, both Hill and Timothy, Nick and Fee, as they were ubiquitously known, were forced to resign. She said that she must get rid of them by the end of the weekend, otherwise they would seek to instigate a leadership contest on Monday. Rightly or wrongly, they had become the public face of one of the worst election campaigns in modern political history. But whatever became of Nick and Fee? Nick quickly refound his feet with a book on the future of conservatism and a high-profile weekly column in the Daily Telegraph. 
Fiona simply disappeared from view. In fact, she's spoken very little in public since that time. I originally WhatsApp Fiona to ask her to do an interview as part of a bigger episode on something completely different. I was delighted she said yes and, if I'm totally honest, a bit surprised. You should still get to hear that episode too though, maybe next week, who knows. But not today, because after I sat down with Fiona Hill, it was clear this interview had to be an episode in its own right. She was just too open, too engaging and too brutally honest. I think if I cared about being liked, I wouldn't be here today. So in this episode, you'll hear what went wrong in the 2017 election. I think everything, frankly. About the pressures of being Downing Street Chief of Staff. It's a lot to have on your shoulders, but it's a very lonely job. When the secret planning started for Theresa May to become Prime Minister. Within about a month of being in the Home Office, we had our eye on a particular prize. And on what happened after the whole thing fell apart. And and were you okay? Mm, Not really. Not really. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm showing you what it's like to be Downing Street Chief of Staff and revealing a very different Fiona Hill from the one you thought you knew. It is 4pm on Friday afternoon at the very start of spring and after much toing and froing and more than a couple of cancelled appointments, Fiona Hill is in the studio. Okay, ready? Eddie. So, Fiona Hill, thank you so much for speaking to us here today at Westminster Insider Bunker. Thank you very much for having me, Aggie. I'm going to give a quick sort of potted history of your entire career up till now. Um, You were a journalist, I think you were a football journalist... Um, and then you worked for other newspapers before working for Sky News. I think we did a similar-ish job when when you were at Sky News. I think we so both, I believe. Both uh, did news editor jobs and both also had the joy of working with uh, John Craig. <laughs> <laughs> who lovely actually, John. Lovely John, who actually told me a great story as well about... He says, the two of you were on a trip to a NATO meeting of foreign ministers when you became great friends and you hit someone over the head when they tried to stop him doing any more lives as well. That is correct. That is correct. I had to hit the security man with a very large umbrella. After journalism, Fiona Hill joined CCHQ, back when the Conservatives were in opposition. And actually, it's a good segue, I think, before you get into government, mm. because you have the experience then of having been in the media and then actually living a political life, understanding parliamentary procedure, that age-old thing <laughs> that still baffles me. And so four years of opposition, understanding political behaviour, mm-hmm. understanding how to use that to your advantage is critical, I think. Um, and it's interesting watching the Labour Party in opposition now because that's what they'll be learning, getting themselves ready for being in, in government if that's what happens. Um, And there's something very exciting about being in opposition because it's a real team spirit. Um, And if the team's right, it's it's just joyous, actually. And I saw a few ex-colleagues last weekend and we just laugh about it even now. Um, So much fun was had. And then you go into government and then it gets serious. Very, very serious. Fiona doesn't remember exactly when she met Theresa May, but thinks it was probably at some party conference or other when she was still working as a journalist. She does, though, recall her first impressions. I thought she was very tall. They briefly worked together when Fiona was at CCHQ when she covered for one of Theresa May's press officers. And after the 2010 election, when May was made Home Secretary, she asked Fiona to work with her in the department. 
And there was about a week, maybe two, between the coalition being formed and then appointments being made. And in that time, I hung out with my lovely mummy. And Teresa called me when we were walking around Blenheim Palace and asked me to be her special advisor. And I got in the car and said to Mum, uh, I think she'll be Prime Minister one day. And Mum genuinely laughed. <laughs> Quite a little bit too hard than I'd have wanted. Um, and I said, honestly, Mum, I, I just have a feeling. I think she will be Prime Minister one day. And she was. And what was it about her? It wasn't necessarily about her, given we were going into a coalition and, mm. and that would be uncertain for a Conservative Party to accept Liberal Democrat policies and I thought well that might mean that David might not not always be safe. I thought if we can make her very credible at the Home Office and she gets a good run at the Home Office which indeed she did mm. uh, then she could potentially be in the running looking at the competition. I want to start by paying tribute to the Prime Minister. It's easy to forget how far the Conservative Party and our country have come since David Cameron was first elected leader. When did you start planning that campaign for Theresa May to be Prime Minister? Maybe uh, within about a month of being in the Home Office. <laughs> Nick and I were very naughty. But, but you know, really, if she had any chance to be uh, Prime Minister, she had to be a very good Home Secretary. And so we worked probably that bit harder because we had our eye on a particular prize. And you say you and Nick, was Theresa involved in the plans at that stage? Um, I think any politician goes to bed and puts their head softly on the pillow and thinks, when I'm Prime Minister one day. How did you find the Home Office? I loved it. Yeah? I loved it so much. Fa favorite, was that the favourite job you've had? Or By far. Things like saying no to the Americans that, no, we wouldn't extradite Gary McKinnon. Gary McKinnon was a British computer hacker who'd admitted to accessing US government computers, but claimed he was looking for UFOs. He was accused of hacking into computers at the Pentagon and NASA. He was very nearly extradited to the US in 2012, after a 10-year legal battle. McKinnon's been fighting against extradition to the United States, arguing his case should be heard in Britain. For years, the computer hacker Gary McKinnon has avoided being extradited to America because of a serious risk he'd kill himself. The final decision had been left with the then Home Secretary. McKinnon is accused of serious crimes, but there is also no doubt that he is seriously ill. He has Asperger's syndrome and suffers from depressive illness. It's evidence currently sitting on the Home Secretary's desk, and within weeks it will form the basis of her decision on his fate. So on the Friday afternoon, uh, we had had the final submission from the civil service to say that we had to extradite him because there wasn't enough proof, or indeed there was apparently no proof, that he would commit suicide if he went to a supermax prison in the States. And frankly, I really didn't want to accept that because he's a young man, um, and yes, he did something wrong, but a supermax prison in a, in an, on another continent seemed fairly harsh. Um, and the document itself, when I read it, was so long. And by then I had worked out uh, that when documents are that long, sometimes there's something in there that, that maybe someone hasn't seen. Mm. 
And so that weekend, um, I took the document home with me, um, as did one of our lawyers. We were looking through it over the weekend and he called me around four o'clock on the Sunday and he said, Fee, uh, turned to page, I think it was something like page 77. Or, and there was this short sentence which said clearly that Gary McKinnon would take his own life. And what, no, just no one had read it? And so I said, get that in the box and straight to Teresa immediately. And I called and I said, you're about to receive a box. Um, This is what it says. And then I woke up at five o'clock in the morning on the Monday and I had a text message from Teresa saying, I will not be extraditing Gary McKinnon. And I jumped out of bed. I punched the air. I couldn't get my makeup on quickly enough to get into the office. It was one of the most... Oh, gosh. It was just such an amazing moment. I have concluded that Mr McKinnon's extradition would give rise to such a high risk of him ending his life that a decision to extradite would be incompatible with Mr McKinnon's human rights. And then the Americans went absolutely crazy. They were furious. You know, no one had ever refused their extradition. And that took a loss of handling. But his mother was so relieved and she sent Teresa the biggest bouquet of flowers I've ever seen. And it was just a really, really lovely moment. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. In June 2016, the leadership campaign which Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy had been quietly planning since 2010 suddenly sprang into life. It was about this and this alone not the future of any single politician, including myself. David Cameron resigned from Downing Street, having lost an EU referendum campaign in which Theresa May had carefully played little part. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months, but I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Fiona started working on May's official bid for Downing Street exactly two hours after Cameron announced his decision. We were fairly prepared. We thought about it. Um, We thought about what she would say. Um, Nick was squirrelling away some of his speeches, which he's excellent at doing. Uh, I mean, he, he wrote the speech that she gave when she became Prime Minister and came out to the podium on Downing Street. He wrote that, I think, in about 15 minutes. So Angela Leadsom dropped out. Then we had to hot-foot it over to the Cabinet Office to see Jeremy Haywood. And then the following day, which also happened to be my birthday, the 14th of July, Bastille Day, obviously she went to the palace. And before she went to the palace, we were in her parliamentary office and Nick was type, type, typing on uh, his laptop. And I was speaking to Teresa about whether she should really wear that necklace or not. (laughs) Um, Obviously, Nick had no uh, opinion on that. Uh, And then Nick uh, just gave me his laptop and he said, can you read this and let me know what you think? And I read it and I said, it's absolutely perfect. I didn't change change anything. And the fact he wrote that in 15 minutes, I still find amazing. But it's because, you know, he'd, he'd written what he'd believed for a long time and it really, really came from the heart. To make Britain a country that works for everyone means more than fighting these injustices. 
If you're from an ordinary working class family, life is much harder than many people in Westminster realise. Okay, so Prime Ministers don't normally write their own speeches. In fact, Jack did an entire episode on how to write a political speech back in season three. But there is something striking about Fiona describing one of Theresa May's most important and famous speeches as being what Nick had believed for a long time. What really, really came from Nick's heart. Your own home, but you worry about paying the mortgage. You can just about manage, but you worry about the cost of living and getting your kids into a good school. What does a chief of staff actually do? That is a very big question. I've got time. Um, gosh, uh, everything from negotiating salaries with special advisors who think they should be paid a million pounds a year to trying to persuade the cabinet secretary that his idea on X or Y policy just won't land well, so there's no point in wasting the Prime Minister's time, to worrying about whether the message is cutting through, worrying about whether the parliamentary party is happy enough, worrying about whether what the country is saying on the world stage is clear enough, worried about the economy, worried about media reporting, which is often inaccurate, and then having to persuade people that what they've read actually isn't quite the case. And I've just worked out that I've said the word worrying more than once. So I think that job is it's a lot to, to have on your shoulders. Did you enjoy it? Parts of it. But it's a very lonely job. I didn't see family and friends when I did that job. People are looking to you to to lead them, which is part of the job which I like. I like leadership roles. But leadership roles are, are lonely roles. And often people just don't really like you, so you have to factor in the fact that you're not the most liked person around a lot of the time. Do you care about being liked? Um, I think if I cared about being liked, I wouldn't be here today. It strikes me a chief of staff is sort of everything rolled into one, kind of friend, protector, advisor. Is that the way you saw it? Yes, but also you are the, the holder, the keeper of the strategy. So you then also have to work with all the different government departments to implement that strategy. So it's a very strategic job, or rather it ought to be. On one hand, you are the person looking after what your Prime Minister is setting out to achieve. And then you're the person looking after the Prime Minister in every way to make sure that the Prime Minister gets to achieve what said Prime Minister is setting out to achieve. And that can be restricting her time on things that that really are not necessary. How much access do you have to the Prime Minister when you're Chief of Staff? Full access. Uh, Your desk is directly outside the front door of her office. That is there to stop people just popping in there when they like. You go in and out of the office if she's in the office and in the building. But in truth, a lot of the time it's really running the building and going out and seeing people and having people come into Downing Street who have an issue or they have something that they want to tell us about. And when you say kind of stop, you can stop other people going in. Is that something you had to do? Yes. 
a lot. <laughs> but the truth is, if, if there wasn't a gatekeeper sitting outside, it would be mayhem. Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy were close in Downing Street. There was a clear divide on who did what between the two chiefs, different interests, and they had different areas of expertise. They'd met a decade earlier, working together in opposition, and then the Home Office, before finally entering Number 10. Um, I think we bonded because we uh, had a common purpose. We have, we enjoy laughing. Nick and I have a very poor sense of humour. I say poor in the sense that we think we're really funny, but no one else does. I mean, he played so many awful practical jokes on me. Like what? Okay, so... (laughs) I had... I'd briefed a security correspondent on a story and I had been a bit nervous about it. It was fairly high risk, but it was necessary. And I went out for lunch with a journalist and I came back in and my computer and its keyboard had disappeared from, from my desk and there was a white envelope with my name on it sitting on the desk. I sit down in my chair and I think this is slightly odd. And then I open the letter and it says, Dear Fiona, um, we have reason to believe that you have illegally briefed a security journalist. We must ask you to give your pass back to the department and leave forthwith. And I, I, I mean, the first thing I said was, what will my mum say? <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, oh, what will Teresa say? And then I walked, in, I walked out of our office into the private office and I said, guys, you won't believe it, but I mean, I think I've been sacked. Um, and then Nick, oh, he's so bad. He'd kept a straight face for quite a long time and then finally he couldn't hold it any longer. And the whole thing had been a practical joke. Wow. Yes. Did you laugh? Eventually, after about maybe two years. Does Theresa May have a sense of humour? Did you ever? She does, very much so. Pull she does. practical jokes on her? No practical jokes, but I do. I did enjoy travelling with Theresa. We would get on a plane and have a glass of wine and a girly gossip and, and a bit of a laugh. Did you, Nick and Theresa, disagree on things? Were you kind of very much one team, all in line most of the time? Yeah. We're very strong personalities, and that's okay. what made us a good team. Yeah. But we trusted each other and we respected each other. Um, so often we would have quite fierce disagreements. All three of you? Mm. And sometimes it would be two against one. And and if it's sort of the three of you having a conversation, are there points where Theresa May's like, OK, guys, I'm the Prime Minister? Or is it a genuine, everyone's on the same keel, everyone just puts their argument forward and then hopefully you come to an agreement? Theresa was very good at allowing us to take our time to make our own arguments. And then eventually, and of course it wasn't just our argument, it was also the civil service. Um, And then in the end, she would listen to everyone and then she would make up her own mind based on everything that she'd heard. And she was very, very good like that, actually. Were you friends? Yes, of course. Yes, you have to be. You have to trust each other. And uh, she trusted Nick and I 100%. And we trusted her. Are you still in touch with her? Yes, I saw her week before last. How is she? Very well. Still tall. Still tall. (laughs) Do you talk about the Downing Street days or do you sort of put it behind you and... I would never reveal conversations, Aggie. Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy faced strident criticism while they were in Downing Street, including from colleagues. 
Fiona Hill was called pugilistic, said to have sent sweary text messages, and one former aide described rude, abusive and childish behaviour in Downing Street. One of the most famous incidents was something Westminster insists on calling Trousergate. After an interview in which Theresa May wore very expensive trousers, her former cabinet colleague Nicky Morgan slagged her off for doing so. Then Fiona Hill told a minister not to bring that woman to Downing Street. You probably read the text of that last interaction because, in time-honoured tradition, they were all leaked to the Mail on Sunday. I asked Fiona about that leak, but I should note she was speaking to me before the most recent blow-up over leaked WhatsApps from a different administration. Well, I think it's fundamentally dishonourable. It's not something I would ever do. And I think if someone does that, it tells you everything you need to know about that person. There were reports of you kind of swearing at people. I I just didn't do that. You didn't do that? OK. I held people to account for the, the jobs that I'd given them, as anyone would. I expected people to work hard. I was working hard. But I didn't ever swear at people or shout at people. It seems to me that advisers in Downing Street throughout the years have a lot of coverage. Advisers often end up being the story. Most recently, there was um, Allegra Stratton, who was kind of forced to resign over the Partygate scandal. Do you think advisers sometimes are the full men for politicians? Yes. And I don't think it's very healthy. When I was an advisor, I really had no desire to see my name anywhere. Sadly, I did. But really, advisors should really be an extension of the civil service and and really being the bridge between the purity of civil service advice but the political reality of what a policy may or may not do to a government. I don't know how long that, that period lasted when so much was written about me. Um, it was It was not uh, particularly nice or complimentary. It upsets my family a lot. I chose not to read it, but I could see in the faces of family and my close friends that it wasn't very good. And in fact, I saw someone yesterday who I was in government with who I've not seen since before leaving, and I was reminded how awful it was because he reminded me. Having not seen me for such a long time, he said, you know, you you, uh, you were really treated very, very badly indeed. But I don't, I mean, do I care about it? No. Bad things happen from time to time. And you get up and you move on and you take the good from it because there's always good in things that you would rather not happen. Lobby journalists who Fiona had known for years suddenly became the enemy. I'd known a lot of these people since I was 25, 26. They knew who I was and suddenly they behaved towards me like I was a stranger, someone they'd never known or gone out and you know, frankly got drunk with. And I really couldn't reconcile it in my head, but I very quickly had to accept it and understand it. Um, and there are very few of them that I would call friend now because it seemed to me that they chose... And I guess, look... You, I guess maybe you can't be friends. But I found the the the, the speed of the change and, and the blunt side of it just just weird. And and do you think it do you think there was sexism in it? I mean, Nick Timothy also had bad coverage about him, but it did 
especially at times that it seemed like there was more about you? I would never, ever want to play that card. But in truth, that's the first time in my life that I did feel that there was a bit of sexism in it. But again, I wouldn't bother labouring over it. What's the point? I mean, as much as it was tough, I enjoyed it and it was a privilege. And when life gives you a privilege like that, you make the most of it. And I, and, and, and those are the bits you did enjoy. And I guess the, we've kind of talked about it, but the bits you didn't enjoy and potentially felt destabilising were when you were getting those headlines and the story became about you. Yes. And also, uh, you know, my personal life was uh, tricky. My partner uh, was diagnosed with diet terminal cancer so I was dealing a bit a bit with that so my recollection of that time is mired a little bit with that as well but yeah it was an interesting time. Almost no one knew about Fiona's partner to the world she was just getting on with her job and that job was about to get even harder. The meeting of the cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election. The election. Coming up, the election, the aftermath and, coming soon, a global security conference to get excited about. Stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. In April 2017, Theresa May surprised just about everyone by calling a snap election, less than a year into her tenure as Prime Minister. You're joking. Not another one? Oh, for God's sake, I can't honestly... I can't stand this. Months earlier, she'd told Andrew Marr that the next election would not be held until 2020. But on a notorious walking holiday in Wales with her husband over Easter 2017, she changed her mind. Times when people stand up and demand real significant change. This is one of those moments. You were pro the election. I was indeed pro. Still thinking back, right decision? 100%. Okay. Talk me through how you got to the stage where a secret election was called. Because, I mean, externally at least, it, it, it was very, very, very secret until the day it was announced. I think it's the best secret that I've ever <laughs> kept in my life. I mean, I still don't know how we managed to do it. But yeah, going back to why we did it, 
The majority that we inherited from uh, David was very, very slim. And we had huge totemic pieces of legislation that we would need to get through the House. And frankly, when you did the arithmetic, the numbers were not likely to be helpful. So there was partly that. Then Teresa's polling was of the kind that we just couldn't have expected. She even polled well in Scotland, where the Conservative Party are not exactly popular. Um, and she she polled well across demographics. Um, and the general sense was, actually, if we need to get Brexit done, we probably need to have an election so that we can have the numbers in, in the House. And we felt confident that we could do that. So all in all, it felt the right thing to do. Teresa herself took some time to decide. The delay caused us time. It meant that the election was longer than it needed to be. But we went into it um, and obviously we brought in Lyndon Crosby and his team. And I think we know what happened. What went wrong? I think everything, frankly. The momentum wasn't there. We had two terror attacks. We had a cyber attack on the NHS. Teresa didn't look like she was enjoying it. Was she? You'll have to ask her. I've never asked her the question. Um, and then the social health care thing. The social health care thing is probably better remembered in a triumph of opposition rebranding as the dementia tax. This was the controversial Tory 2017 manifesto pledge to change the way people pay for adult social care. Opposition parties and others piled in to criticise a plan that did not include a limit on how much it could cost families. We are proposing the right funding model for social care. Really, I think, was the final straw, really, because it was very, very difficult to explain, and when she was doing live debates, she struggled to explain it. Is that because she didn't really believe in it? Oh, I think she believed in it, but it was a tricky policy. And it was a very complicated policy, and not the kind of policy you have during a general election campaign. You were against the social care policy? Very much so. And I made my view very, very clear. It took just four days for May to U-turn and say there would be a cap on the amount people would have to pay after all. But weirdly, Downing Street kept on pretending the policy had not been rewritten. Nothing has changed from the principles on social care. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Actually, it seemed like rather a lot had changed. Prime Minister, your manifesto rejects a cap. It gives a reason why you don't want a cap. Now you're going to have a cap. You need to be honest, I would say. And and, and after that kind of U-turn and the nothing has changed moment, were you like, I think this campaign is going in the wrong direction? Did you look at her face and think, oh, God? After the Manchester arena bombing, we flew up to Manchester and the plane had to drop... Um, a certain number of feet and the cockpit window had smashed and I was not feeling particularly good about the campaign and at that moment I just thought this is this is it this is this election I don't know if we'll completely lose it but I certainly didn't know it was going to be the heady 80 number 
uh, majority that, that Linton had had told us that it would be. The election she called that she promised not to delivered not the thumping majority she sought, but in fact, no majority at all. They didn't lose the election completely, but Theresa May did lose her majority and was forced to go into a power-sharing agreement with the DUP. Still in office, but just how much power does she have? A lot of senior Conservatives were demanding that Theresa May sacked her two chief advisers. Fiona Hill was told to resign. Yeah, I mean, I never actually went back into Downing Street, the building. I think the la- In fact, I think the last time I was actually in Downing Street, the building, was when I went over there to argue against the social health care policy. So on the night of the election, I went down to Theresa's constituency and at one point we came back up and it must have been, I don't know, maybe two, three o'clock in the morning. And we were sitting in a room and she said, you have to resign. Um... I didn't. I, I honestly don't even know what I said back to that at that point. And then I left, picked up my things from a hotel room that I was staying in during the campaign, got home, sat with my blue suit on, as I remember it. Um, and even though it was, I think, seven or eight in the morning, poured myself a glass of red wine, had a cigarette, maybe two, Um <laughs> went to bed and I think I must have slept I think for something like maybe 15, 16 hours without a break and when I woke up it's a bit like bereavement when you wake up you you kind of have that moment where it hasn't happened and then suddenly you have the realisation oh yes, it really did happen and then I picked up my phone and, I mean, hundreds of missed calls. And... From who? Just everyone? Oh, God, Aggie, goodness knows. Yeah. I just threw the phone away and went back to sleep again. Did you ever pick up the phone or was it work phone you never had to see it again? At one point, I had to address it because some of the missed calls were from Teresa um, and Nick. And Nick really wanted to put out a resignation comment on Conservative Home and was trying to get through to me to tell me that he was doing that. And so eventually on the Saturday morning, I had to wake up and smell the coffee and address things. And I took her call. She said, you must resign. It must have felt like I'd gone AWOL to them. I was just sleeping. So... Things had to be announced, you know. She had to get on and be Prime Minister. And so I sent out a short statement, fairly pithy, went to the pub, got completely smashed with my sister. And, yeah, that was... that was, And then went back to sleep again. And honestly, I think I slept pretty much constantly for a week. And the weather was marvellous. I got fantastic suntan. And I read amazing books. And, and were you OK? Mm, not really. Not really. I was in shock. And I was worried about money and I was worried about what I would do next. Um, I was worried about my family because I know they love me and, and they were worried about me and I don't like people being worried about me. But really I did... I mean, I I, I went away 
quite a lot. Um, I mean, I wasn't abroad. I sat in my garden and read books. And I remember, um, I remember thinking, I do not want to become a bitter person. And so I read the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi over and over again. It was almost like uh, doing the rosary or something, I don't know. But I would get up in the morning and I would read that prayer because I wanted to be able to move on and not blame others and to forgive and not be bitter. I, 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 I don't know why, it was just something in my head. It, I was fixated with it. I kept saying to myself, I will not be a bitter person. I will not be an angry person. And did it work? Yes, it did. Sounds like I'm a bit of a happy clappy. I'm, I'm no. not. But, you know, in times when you're alone, and I was living alone, and I was very alone, um, and I probably pushed my family away a little bit because I didn't want them to see me. Um, but in times like that, you do need to um, dig deep. But again, having a moment like that is what makes you the person you are in the future. Was it difficult when kind of people were writing books or writing articles about periods like that and you don't want to say anything so there's only one kind of view coming across? Aggie, I could have jumped from a rooftop and no one would have cared what I was saying. They wanted the narrative, they wrote the narrative and the idea that I would expend any of my energy trying to turn it round was for the birds. So you just thought better to just say nothing? Why bother? Let them write it. I know the truth. How long before you started working again? Years. Really? Yeah, no one wanted to employ me. It was awful. I'd march, I'd get marched around these headhunters who invariably would say, you're too controversial, no one will want to have you, or you're too senior, so we don't know where we would place you. And in the end, after I don't know how long I was doing that, my sister said, stop going to see headhunters. It's getting you absolutely nowhere. I lived off what little savings I had left and I honestly got to a stage where I really didn't know what would happen. But then then it just seemed to change and I changed my own attitude and I thought, well, I'll go it by myself. And another friend put me on a, a board, an oil and gas company board, and that was great. I then started to get some projects come in and suddenly I was out in the world again. Years on from leaving Downing Street, Fiona set up her own company called Marsham Street and is organising a global security conference for later this year at Glen Eagles Hotel in Scotland. I was sitting in a garden not long after Putin invaded uh, Ukraine and in my head for a long time I have been observing geopolitical shifts um, as everyone else uh, has been. And I thought, in my experience of government, when there is a threat, the best way of facing that threat is working in collaboration with other countries, with the private sector, with civil society. These threats are multifaceted, and so therefore they need collaborative approaches in solving them. And I didn't think that there was anything around that really necessarily took that view or, or took that approach. 
And once I started thinking like that, that's when I could see that that conference was much needed. And when I went out to speak to serious people about it, and I've got some amazing people on my advisory council, like uh, Sir Alex Younger, Sir John Scarlett. Alex Younger and John Scarlett are both former heads of MI6. Um, There's still a few more spaces left for uh, corporates who want to give me money. Please give me money. So, yeah, and I'm really, really excited about it, Aggie. And the feedback I've had has been really, really heartening. And we're having at Glen Eagles, which is an excellent venue, on the 9th and the 10th of October. We have got the support of the government, and I've briefed the government on it. Um, But this is a private endeavour. Um, but nevertheless, she obviously needs the support of not just our government, but others. Um, and it will be populated by world leaders, other politicians, academics, uh, big corporations. Before we finished, I had to ask Fiona Hill's views on our current political leaders. I figured she'd have thoughts. What do you think of Rishi Sunak? I like him very, very much. Keir Starmer? Actually, I've met Keir... Um, at the Home Office when he was DPP, and I think he's a good man, yes. Good enough to be Prime Minister? I haven't read his manifesto yet. All right, fine. No, no decision that. Liz Truss? Yes. Understood. Boris Johnson? Well, you see, Boris, actually, when I left Downing Street, was very kind, and he would phone and check in and make sure that I was OK, which not many other people bother to. So I feel difficult to say anything about about Boris politically because at the end of the day he was very nice to me by by checking in and you have to respect that. Any regrets? Never. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you very much, Aggie. So that's Fiona Hill, the sharp political operative turned global security broker who in the middle spent a few years hiding from sight. Theresa May's premiership never really recovered from that disappointing election, or the loss of her two key advisers. Maybe that shows Machiavelli was right. To reflect on May's intelligence, we need look no further than the arguments and decisions of Fiona Hill. But the thing that struck me most, really, was how quickly things went wrong and the personal toll it took. Fiona had plotted for six years to get Theresa May into Downing Street and was forced out after less than one. It left her exactly where she didn't want to be, in the news, day after day, keeping herself sane with the words of St Francis of Assisi, repeating over and over again, I will not be bitter, I will not be angry. I will not be bitter, I will not be angry. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget you can go back and listen to past episodes, like Jack's on how Spads took over Westminster from season two, which includes an interview with Fiona's co-chief of staff, Nick Timothy. My producer this week was Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.